0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the fourth online Summer School Theme Talk for 2021. So far, excuse me, so far we've heard from Joe James, Shana Parvin-Begum and Rory Castle-Jones. And this evening, I'm looking forward to hearing Stephen Lingwood's gift to us. I am welcoming you on behalf of the Summer School panel. In ascending order of age, we are Nicola Temple, Jane Blackall, Kate Brady McKenna, and Michael Allard. You are welcome, no matter what you've brought with you, no matter where you are, and no matter how many of these talks you've experienced in the past. We're gathered from all over the place, and we gather from our desks, our kitchen tables, Our sofas, our beds, our gardens, our offices. It doesn't matter how or from where we gather. It matters that we gather. Our overall theme this week is, why are we here? Discerning our Unitarian mission in an upturned world. And each of our speakers has been invited to bring their own particular take to this topic. It is a fantastic opportunity for all of us listeners and speakers alike to be able to ponder questions more deeply than we get the chance to in a normal sermon excuse me some housekeeping before we start sorry if you're coming to several sessions this week if you've been to some of these you will be familiar with these notes but they are important help us all get what we need from the sessions, and they may be new, some of you. Firstly, we are recording the session. If that causes you any concerns, if you just turn your camera off, you absolutely won't appear. It will only be the speaker, but if you feel more secure with your camera off, I invite you to do that. Secondly, the chat function, it's lovely seeing greetings as we come in, but now please don't use it this evening unless Stephen specifically asks you to, and then only use it for the purposes he he gives. Using the chat does distract people and it takes away from the gift that we're being offered this evening. We want everyone to be able to listen to the talk without distraction, and any questions which crop up can be raised in the group chats at the end. You should find that you can turn subtitles on and off somewhere in the app or on the web page, depending on how it is that you're joining us. The subtitles are pretty accurate, but they're live and automatic. So there may be some issues with particular words. I gather the subtitling is learning the word unitarian. So that's something. I do apologize if the subtitling does become unhelpful. I know that it lessens the accessibility of the talk for some of you and I apologize. The problems are generally ironed out by the time they appear on the YouTube recording. Throughout the evening, please do what you need to do to be comfortable. That might include turning your camera off, having a stretch or just having a move around. If you miss any of the talk, you can watch it on YouTube. It will be there by morning, I think. Please remember when you're moving around that even if you can only see the speaker, we can see you if your camera is on. So please turn it off if you're moving around and please don't take us wandering around the house with you. If you're not sat watching, please just turn your camera off. The, the panel will be keeping an eye on what's going on in the other screens during the session. So if anything untoward does happen, we will deal with it. We do know that there are reasons you may need to leave before the end. Again, watch out for the YouTube recording and know that you leave with our blessing. Part of the ethos at Summer School is that we receive these talks as open and generous spiritual offerings from the speaker. They take spiritual and emotional energy and are presented as precious gifts to the community. For that reason we don't have Q&A or discussions after the talk. Once the talk is finished the chat will be open to show your appreciation to Stephen but it's not there for debate or critique. You'll be able to share your views in small groups and we hope that you'll use those groups as a continuation of the spirit of the talk rather again than for debating. After the talk we'll take a short break the kettle on or have a stretch and then for those of you who wish to join in we'll gather again before popping you into the small groups for conversation on the talks there will be a prompt question for you to discuss and we'll provide you with this at the end so you might like to scribble them down when that comes up the groups won't be monitored or recorded though it is possible the panel what a panel member might join one or more of the groups as before, Michael, Allard and I will be available separately from the end of the session until around 9.45, if you'd like a pastoral discussion. You'll have received our contact details in the email. So get in touch with us and we can work out what's best to do. You're very welcome, contact either of us. A new announcement here. So if you've stopped listening, perk up for this one. Tomorrow evening, after the talk and after the small group chats, we're inviting you to join us back in here for a very short time of closing devotions. The room You don't need to re-log in, just when you come back from the, from the small groups, we'll be here with those devotions. So that's the housekeeping. We're here this evening to receive the gift of a talk offered to us by Stephen Lingwood. And Stephen says this. Stephen Lingwood is a pioneer community minister serving the congregation of Cardiff Unitarians and Dodiath Cardiff, and doing grassroots mission work in inner city Cardiff. Previously, he worked for nine years as minister of Bank Street Unitarian Chapel in Bolton. He's author of The Unitarian Life, Voices from the Past and Present, and Seeking Paradise, a Unitarian Mission for Our Time. He works in Riverside, a diverse inner city area of Cardiff, engaging in dialogue with artists and political radicals, working on climate activism and collaborating with other faith-based activists. He's exploring what it means to seek paradise in one urban neighbourhood in the age of the climate crisis. And we're starting this evening with a hymn. So let's join together in singing Isaiah the prophet.
1: the Holy, light of the Spirit, inflame our hearts with love and power. Let us pray. mother of life in whom we live and move and have our being. Reach out to us in this moment as we seek to connect with one another and with the depths of existence that is your body. In this moment, may our minds and hearts be open May the depths of life grow within our hearts. May the words that I speak, and the ideas that we struggle with in this moment, lead us deeper to that experience of shalom of peace and justice for this world. Amen. Well, good evening folks, or whatever the time is where you're joining us from. There is an old story or a joke of a man lost in the countryside who asks for directions to the nearest town from a local farmer. There's various versions of this story, but they all end with on on surveying the kind of boggy, inhospitable land. The farmer replies, well, I wouldn't start from here. Where we start from matters. Where we start from matters. And what I constantly see when we talk about promoting our churches or publicity or growth or mission is the habit of starting from the wrong place. We start talking about leaflets and websites and our desperation to attract young people, as Sean already spoke about this week. But how do we grow is the selfish question of a self-involved institution. And when we start from that question, then I'm not confident we will come to a very effective answer. If we start with the basically selfish question, how does this church grow? Or how does this denomination survive, then we will continue to come to self-serving rather than world-serving answers. And paradoxically, I believe those answers will continue to keep us irrelevant and lead to our extinction in any case. How do we grow is not the question. The question is, what is the pain of the world? And how might we be part of a work of healing? What is the dysfunction of the world? And how might we be a part of creating health and wholeness? What is the suffering of the world? And how might we be a part of healing justice? And those questions I'd like to suggest have a particular urgency in these times, in this particular moment we sit in in history. The world is upturned. Just this month, the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released its most stark warning yet, which they do every few years, that we are currently heading for a complete climate catastrophe. There is an urgent need to change the political and economic systems of our global society Otherwise, we will see massive suffering and death for billions of people, not to mention other plants and animals. The COVID pandemic was and is a significant global crisis, of course, but the climate crisis that is just beginning is many times more significant and many times more deadly. In the face of this, I think the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what are the world's needs in this moment? What needs exist for which a spiritual path could provide a response? So what are those needs? Literally and practically, what does the world need to do to get through this crisis? A simple answer is that we need to transition from a carbon-based economy to a non-carbon-based economy. But that doesn't really get to the heart of the matter. The carbon economy has created the world as we know it today. The carbon economy is simultaneously the colonial economy, the global finance economy, the global capitalist economy. And so to transition out of carbon, we need to transition from an economy that works for the few to an economy that works for the whole world. We need to shift from a world that is built on the acquisition of wealth to a world built on the growth of human wisdom. We need to shift from a world built on selfishness to a world built on care. We need to shift from a colonial world that sees wealth transferred from the global south to the global north to a decolonized world of global redistribution and justice. We need to shift from an atomized vision of the individual consumer to a communal vision of the person in relationship to the local community, to the global community, to generations to come and to the natural world. And if that all seems idealistic, then we have to remember that the current system that we're living in is simply unsustainable. It will break. It is inevitable because it will come up against natural limits. We only have one planet, but the system we're living in, the carbon-based capitalist system, believes it is greater than the planetary boundaries of living on one planet, despite the fact that this is obviously irrational. So it will break in 10 years, in 20 years, in 30 years whatever one day it will break and we will have to make a different world to create that different world and to facilitate the death of the old world and to weather the storm of that change i want to suggest we're going to need three r's resistance repentance and resilience I believe the spiritualities needed in this moment of crisis are spiritualities of resistance, spiritualities of repentance, and spiritualities of resilience. In a world run for the gain of a small capitalist class, we need a spirituality of resistance that tells the truth of what's going on, names the powers, and actively resists these structures of power that see the world only in terms of objective resources to be consumed and not inherent value. In a world built on the uncaring self of the ego, we need need a spirituality of repentance that names how these forces of violence and power exist within us and models how to change from the uncaring self to the caring self. And in a world where those structures of power are winning and will continue to do much more damage to people and to the earth, we need a spirituality of resilience that gives us some hope and some sustenance, even in the darkest of times. What sort of spiritual paths and spiritual communities are able to cultivate resistance, resistance, repentance and resilience? I've no doubt that many spiritual paths and spiritual communities have the resources to do this. But at the same time, it's also true that many communities and approaches to the spiritual will also prove inadequate to these times. So what I wanna do this evening is speak out of a particular spiritual path to which I'm committed to explore how this might be possible within our tradition. I want to explore how a prophetic biblical faith may cultivate practices of resistance, repentance and resilience needed in this critical time. So, as you may have already gathered, you know, the path I'm taking you on tonight is not an easy one. Uh, this is not a light talk, I'm afraid. This is not an easy uh, set of ideas to wrestle with, either intellectually or emotionally. I'm asking us to wrestle uh, with big ideas and with really challenging issues. But I say, I think it's, it's really critical that we do this. And I think the climate crisis is such a radical crisis, a crisis that threatens human life on a scale like nothing else that our primary mission is to respond to it. Not as an issue amongst a menu of other political issues, but as the context in which we operate. It's understanding the world we're living in right now. And if if we're not relating to that ultimate context, if we're not relating to a, a real sense of the truth of what the world is that we're living in in this moment in history, I'm afraid I think we're rather irrelevant Uh, and I think personally I'm not that interested in what religious community does, what this religious community does, if we're not in some sense relating to the urgent context that we live in. So this is big stuff and I'm kind of tackling it from a particular angle. I want to contribute by saying something from a a basically classical biblical Unitarian position to try to explore what the prophetic mission might be in a time of climate crisis. And I'm going to try and draw on the insights of a number of uh, theologians and thinkers, but particularly the theologian Walter Wink and psychologist, Sally Weintrobe. To explore the prophetic task before us and what i mean by prophetic task is the work of telling the truth of the injustice of society and telling the truth of how this falls short of god's vision of shalom the earth as original blessed paradise god's vision of peace and justice made manifest in history and in drawing on the work of unitarian theologian james luther adams as i always do I am considering this prophetic task, not as something for a supernaturally appointed elite, uh, not for some special person called a prophet, but for the whole church. Our our task, our mission is to be prophetic. So three parts tonight, resistance, uh, repentance, and resilience. So this is uh, the first part, cultivating a spirituality of resistance. How can this kind of biblical prophetic approach cultivate a spirituality of resistance as its mission in this moment of crisis? Well, first, I think we need to be really clear why this moment calls for resistance. What is it that we are resisting? And the simplest thing I can say is that the world is on fire. And we can't deal with that unless we deal with the arsonists those who are setting the world on fire. We can't just put a thimble of water on the fire and then say, well, I've done my bit now. Whilst down the road, someone is actively pouring petrol on the fire. We have to confront, we have to resist the ones actively pouring petrol on the fire. So who are the arsonists? To answer that question, we have to ask another one. We have known very clearly about the climate crisis since the 1980s. I'm 39 years old, I was born in 1982. We kind of knew about it then. Like the whole of my life, it's been fairly clear. So why haven't we already dealt with this? Why, across all those decades, have we not already dealt with this clear, urgent problem? Why have we not already dealt with it? And the answer to that question is to do with what arose most strongly in the 1980s. Because the 1980s was also a a time when a new and very powerful ideology was rising in the world, the ideology of neoliberalism. Just at this moment when there needed to be a massive intervention in the global economy to shift from a carbon-based economy to a non-carbon-based economy, An ideology was on the rise that believed in and preached and evangelized very successfully vast deregulation of free markets, privatization, unending economic growth and consumerism. The doctrine of neoliberalism is that market forces must be left alone and so a deliberate intervention to force a transition out of carbon was against the dogmas of neoliberalism. And that's why it didn't happen in the 1980s and the 1990s and exactly why it still hasn't and doesn't happen today. Uh, Naomi Klein's got this excellent book, This Changes Everything, uh, Capitalism Versus the Climate, which is just brilliant. Uh, A meticulously painstakingly demonstrates exactly what's been going on. She puts her finger on exactly what the problem is, exactly how the doctrines of neoliberalism, free market fundamentalism, growthism, and the powerful disciples of these ideologies are the real blocks to climate action. This is why we haven't dealt with the climate crisis, because of the think tanks that promote neoliberalism, the politicians that believe it, the oil companies that profit from it, the financial industries that profit from it, the banks that bankroll it, and the international free trade agreements that give legal backing to it. These are the arsonists pouring oil on the fire. These are the powers that are responsible for blocking climate action, as well as being responsible for a continuing massive transfer of wealth from the poor to an elite capitalist class. There is no dealing with this crisis without clearly naming and holding responsible those peoples and those powers that are causing it. There are particular structures of power that are responsible for the climate crisis as well as much else. And our moral and necessary obligation for our survival is to resist these powers and to cultivate a spirituality of resistance. Now what's exciting to me about a, a prophetic approach is that it gives a language and a practice for doing just that. The language of unmasking and engaging the powers. This language comes from a uh, ethicist and theologian, Walter Wink. Uh, Who has written um, a number of books around naming the powers and um, masking the powers, engaging the powers and, and a few others as well. And it's, it's, it's a really a masterful take on drawing on a biblical language that talks about the powers and then kind of applying that uh, to our world. Walter Wink kind of shows us through this biblical language that structures of power such as, uh, there's a way to describe structures of power such as neoliberalism in theological terms. And this is what he writes. He writes, every power tends to have a visible pole, an outer form, be it a church, a nation or an economy, and an invisible pole an inner spirit or driving force that animates, legitimates, and regulates its physical manifestation in the world. Neither pole is the cause of the other, both come into existence together and cease to exist together. When a particular power becomes idolatrous, placing itself above God's purposes for the good of the whole, then that power becomes demonic. The church's task is to unmask this idolatry and recall the powers to their created purposes in the world. So, this language enables us to think about how a power such as neoliberalism is both structural and spiritual, both economic and also psychological. And the unmasking of that, of the nature of that, is, un- is necessary to defeat it. Naming is the first part of this process. So for example, why do you think that we name hurricanes? And even now, um, winter storms in the UK never used to do this. Now they name the winter storms in the UK. It's because our psychology means we understand and take seriously that which is named. And equally, we don't understand and don't take as seriously that which is unnamed. So, if I tell you uh, it's going to be very windy and rainy tomorrow, this doesn't have the same effect as saying to you, Storm Dennis is coming tomorrow, right? If I just say, oh, it's going to be a bit windy, or it's gonna, even if I say it's going to be very windy, it's going to be very seriously windy and rainy, it doesn't in our psychology have the same effect as saying, Dennis is coming, or, or whoever, or this, the names that we give to, to, to storms and, and to hurricanes. Um, When something is named, even when it's personified, right, made into a person, we are more likely to take action to respond to it. So the key prophetic task is to name neoliberalism as a power, as almost a personality. And we can name um, the think tanks that influence government policy, but we can also understand how these things also go much deeper as well than that but i'll talk a bit more about that later once we've named the power we must unmask it and the task of unmasking is now kind of this really urgent task needed in climate justice and I indeed it's a failure to effectively name and unmask the powers that is the cause of so much ineffectiveness in climate campaigning The great problem with climate activism is that there can often be a sense that we don't name and unmask the powers effectively enough. We desperately say someone needs to do something. But we struggle to answer questions like who? Who needs to do what? And why aren't they doing it? What is stopping them doing it? The ineffective and, and frankly wrong answer is that we all need to do something. So much of the climate conversation concentrates on consumerist changes to lifestyle, Uh, less meat switching to a greener energy supplier, driving a little less. They're not bad things, I do all those things, right? But neoliberalism's dogma has so dominated our culture that we think that this will solve it, that we try to solve the climate crisis only through individual consumerism. But in fact, consumerism, which is one aspect of neoliberalism, is one of the causes of the crisis. And we cannot solve a problem with the same logic that created it in the first place. Nevertheless, this kind of consumerist response remains dominant in so much of the climate conversation. The answer we're told on BBC documentary programs, for example, is that we all have to do our bit. And if we do, the cumulative effort will make a difference. But it won't. It simply won't. Us all doing our bit will not solve the climate crisis. The climate crisis is caused by our global economic systems and can only be changed by a massive overhaul of our global economic systems. And this will only come about by naming and actively resisting these systems this is the truth that the powers do their best to hide from us this is what leads for example um, oil companies to encourage consumers to work out a personal carbon footprint this is this is something that the oil company started to deliberately move the responsibility for the climate crisis away from the systems of high capitalism and the oil companies and the 1% riches and towards individual consumers. It's a deliberate campaign of distraction. The religious prophetic task is to tell the truth of this in louder and louder ways. We must unmask the powers. Once we know these are the powers, we can begin to fight against them. Their unmasking is their undoing, as darkness is their greatest weapon. Because we often protest about the climate as so many of us protested against the Iraq war. But are we unmasking the powers beneath these injustices, the story that links it all together? Uh, Do we link the Iraq war with the climate crisis? Do we understand the Iraq war as driven by the carbon economy needing more oil reserves and how the same powers undermine our efforts now to move away from carbon? Can we understand the Iraq war, the climate crisis, workers dying in factories in Bangladesh to make our clothes as all part of the same story, as all rooted in the same power? Once we understand this truth and once millions of us understand this truth, our attention becomes sharply focused on unmasking and defeating this power and its days become numbered at that point. We will see that this economic model is not serving us. It doesn't serve us and that we must do something else. And that's the revolutionary moment. That's when we begin to be part of a revolution that moves the world into a different direction. A spirituality of resistance actively resists the powers of the carbon neoliberal economic order. How do we do that? Well, we tell the truth consistently and repeatedly, that this power is responsible for the climate crisis, as well as global economic inequality, violence against indigenous peoples, and ways of life and regimes of austerity. And we actively join with coalitions of people telling this truth and calling for climate justice and transformational change to our world. We continue to educate ourselves and raise our awareness about it all. Actions like divestment from fossil fuel companies is is a basic minimum in this work in declaring the immoral nature of profiting from this destructive industry and in creating a small amount of financial pressure away from it. But it's also important to say that we are not the ones to lead this movement. It is our role, I think, to lift up the voices of indigenous peoples and those mostly directly affected by environmental destruction and follow their leadership. This is simultaneously a movement against colonialism. But there is also a particular religious mission of telling the truth with the tools of a particular biblical language. So if I'm asked, for example, to give a speech at a protest, I really see no point in saying something that any trade union leader or political campaigner could say. My gift, my vocation as a minister in the world is to tell a story through the languages and practices of my faith. As a person of faith rooted in a particular language, I can sing that song. I can express that poetic language. I can tell that story with a biblical perspective rooted in those prophets of thousands of years ago. That's a gift we can give, as others can give from other languages. Now, people may be drawn uh, to that language, or they may just take it as a gift in the moment but i think it's a gift and an insight to be able to say that you know isaiah struggled under the tyranny of the babylonian empire and jesus struggled under the tyranny of the roman empire and now we struggle under the tyranny of the empire of neoliberalism and we're continuing to struggle for god's justice we're dealing with a struggle that has always existed the struggle between the powers of empire and the powers of the god of liberation this gives us a historic consciousness that locates our struggle with those who struggled in the past, as well as a vision of the future of justice that beckons us forward. And this isn't about promoting or growing our own religious institutions. It's not about getting our name in the papers for doing work. It's about being in coalition with others in the task of facilitating the birth of a new world. The world needs this shift, this revolution. And our mission is to cultivate a spirituality of resistance that can be part of this great turning. I know that's a lot of stuff I've given you. Um, so I'm just going to, we're just going to pause for a moment, and have a moment of music just to, to pause and to take a breath and feel how that's, that's sitting in our bodies. So I hope you're still with me um, as we're chewing um, on some heavy stuff. So the the second part that I want to talk about now is cultivating a spirituality of repentance. So as I said, uh, Walter Wink's work enables us to think about how a power like neoliberalism is both structural and spiritual, both economic and psychological, and that unmasking this is necessary to defeat it. So let's talk a bit more about that. On the structural and economic side, you know, neoliberalism is a set of institutions and people. We could literally name the addresses of think tanks in London and Washington, DC and their campaigning efforts, you know, these these are the powers of neoliberalism. But it's more than that, because a particular institution may close, a particular person who's in charge of that institution may leave, you know, there's a power that continues that is deeper than any one thing we can point to. That's because neoliberalism, like any kind of power in Walter Wink's terms, is, is also spiritual and psychological right these are powers that exist not only in a very material sense in the world but also in a spiritual sense and not just in uh, those people over there but in me and in you these are kind of ways of being and ways of thinking that I can't just externalize in bad guys though there are bad guys um, and, and it's worth naming them but it's not just that because that it also exists within me I can't just externalize that something a bad person over there or a bad institution over there because there's a spirit here and it exists in my heart and it exists in your heart because we swim in this culture so let's keep going in this task of unmasking neoliberalism it's about 60 years old it can be traced to certain you know, economic theorists of the 20th century but of course its roots also go much deeper to to centuries of colonialism empire and extractivism, that the unsustainable taking of resources, particularly from poorer countries. It's the latest phase of a historical movement that has seen the exploitation of some people for the enrichment of others, for an ideology that treats people as a means to an end rather than as ends in themselves. And this goes hand in hand with white supremacy. It requires a belief in the unworth of non-white people for white people to justify an empire that enslaves or impoverishes them for the good of white people, particularly the richest of white and European societies. This is manifested of course in slavery and the genocide of indigenous peoples around the world by white colonial powers. Though today we have in some way uh, limited this ideology through a language of inherent human rights, We still live in a system that ultimately treats people as cogs in a machine, as disposable. This economic system has to be built on an ideology, a theology if you like, a psychology that says it's okay to treat people as cogs in a machine. It's okay to be selfish. Greed is good. It has to be built on an ego-based psychology a psychology that operates out of the uncaring self. So this language has been uh, comes from this uh, another excellent book The Psychological Roots of the Climate Crisis by Sally Weintraub. Just um, yeah so insightful so important I think um, and you know everything that's interesting or original really I'm, I'm getting <laughs> I'm getting from from these these kind of writers that I'm pointing you towards. This isn't really original. What I'm saying tonight It's drawing on other people. So in that book, uh, Weintraub argues that within every person it is both an uncaring self and a caring self. We have both these these ways of being within us. Right. We're not fundamentally uncaring or neither are we fundamentally caring. We kind of got both sides. We have the potential within us to follow both. But the neoliberal politics and e- economy uh, encourages us, encourages the dominance of the uncaring self, the narcissistic self. So Sally Weintraub writes of of her own book. She writes, the book argues that exceptionalism, a rigid psychological mindset, sorry, i have just, yeah, uh, a rigid psychological mindset is largely responsible for the climate crisis. Exceptions, people caught up in this mindset falsely believe that they are entitled to see themselves in idealized terms, have whatever they want because they are ideal and dispense with moral and practical limits through omnipotently rearranging reality. So it is this narcissistic self that is the foundation for the theology and the politics of neoliberalism. As environmental lawyer and activist, Gus Speth has said, I used to think that the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that with 30 years of good science, we could address these problems, but I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy, and to deal with these, we need a spiritual and cultural transformation. And we scientists don't know how to do that. Naming the power of neoliberalism is a revolutionary act, but to truly defeat neoliberalism, we need to address the selfish psychology that undergirds it. We need that cultural and spiritual transformation that addresses selfishness, greed, and apathy. And that begins to see the caring self as the foundation for a different world order. How can a spiritual approach help us to do this? What's clear to me is that the usual liberal approach of saying it's good to be good doesn't help us enough. The practice of moving from the uncaring self to the caring self is one of the great tasks of human living. It requires a robust psychology that recognizes the power of the uncaring self and the battle required to defeat it. And that I would argue requires a robust rejection of individualism. I'd like to draw your attention to the fact that what Weintraub talks about as the uncaring self is is in fact, what she calls exceptionalism, is in fact, uncomfortably close to the language of individualism that Unitarians often parrot. A mindset that allows people to see themselves in idealized terms, have whatever they want and dispense, with moral and practical limits through omnipotently rearranging reality. That to me sounds a bit close to being an individual seeker, seeking the beliefs that best suit the individual and dispensing with any aspect of religious practice that might be challenging or pleasant through building your own theology. Now, perhaps that's a little bit overstated, okay? But I think that there's there's a need for a bit of discomfort here. the psychology of individualism and exceptionalism are very dominant in our society. And I do think we need to pay attention to how this model speaks in a language that is basically individualist consumerism. I will be an individualism except no limit to myself. The sociologist Stephen Hunt describes this consumerist spirituality in this way A veritable spiritual marketplace has emerged, which encourages people to pick and choose until they find a religious identity best suited to their individual rather than collective experience. A freedom to seek a religious faith, which reflects, endorses, and gives symbolic expression to one's lifestyle and social experience. The contemporary religious environment, therefore, permits individuals the freedom to discover their own spiritual truths, their own reality, and their own experience according to what is relevant to their lives. Now I think that's that that rather parallels Weintraub's point about rearranging reality so that think you are so that you think you are immune from the consequences of your actions. Is finding your own reality the same thing as rearranging reality? I don't know. Returning to, to our community, there are those who are seeing the culture of individualism as very problematic for us. The persistent, pervasive, disturbing and disruptive commitment to individualism, according to American Unitarian Universalist Minister Frederick Muir, misguides our ability to engage the changing times. Muir is concerned with uh, American Unitarian Universalism and how it's doing. I want to make a bigger point that that the individualist consumerist religious model and the neoliberalism, neoliberal capitalist system kind of feel like they're coming from the same root psychology. And that an individualism led by ego is the very thing that's doing violence to our world. And the very last thing we need in the world is an individualist religion. This is my challenging bit. At best, it enfeebles our efforts to move to a more caring and connected world, and at worst, it actively works against it. Rather than more individualism, we need interdependence and the caring self. The New Testament Greek word for for repentance is metanoia, understood as a change of direction, a turning around, transformation. James Luther Adams saw this transformation as the essential task of the liberal church. He wrote, the free church, when alive, is the community in which men and women are called to seek fulfillment by the surrender of their lives to the control of the commanding, sustaining, transforming reality. It is the community in which women and men are called to recognize and abandon their ever recurrent reliance on the unreliable. I've added the emphasis there. Recognizing and abandoning the false, what is it that we need to abandon? What is it we need to abandon is the uncaring self, the ego. In relation to the climate crisis, this repentance has been written about by Unitarian Universities Minister, Ian White Mayer. And similar to Sally Weintraub, he sees the ultimate source of the climate crisis as our spiritual condition. He writes, the effects we are facing today and tomorrow are determined by our actions and our actions are the products of our decisions. The quality and condition of our decisions derive from our thinking and our thinking is determined by our spiritual condition. To say the impending collapse is the consequence of our actions conveniently avoids our responsibility for our spiritual condition which is the source of the cascade of all that follows. He goes on to write the first step towards a solution is to admit that we are beyond the point of avoiding calamitous climate change. We cannot begin our process of transformation into healing beings without admitting that our spiritual estrangement has created an environment." that will soon be unlivable for many creatures and potentially humans. The second step is admitting that we need help. Specifically, I believe humanity needs help from the divine and creative life force that is greater than the selfish interests of our individual egos. Anything shy of this confession will leave us with the illusion that we will somehow, through our own willpower and ingenuity, solve the problem but we cannot solve a spiritual problem with intellectual solutions. The repentance required to address the climate crisis involves a shift from the uncaring self to the caring self. Or we could say from the ego self to what we could call the true self as a child of God. The mode of thinking that created the climate crisis is that there is no limit limit to human ego power that we can keep technologically achieving more, making more, buying more, being more, in total independence and in our own power. White Mayer suggests we need to repent of this thought process and recognize our limits and dependence on something greater than ourselves. White Mayer in drawing on 12-step spirituality, such as Alcoholics Anonymous, insists that humanity needs to recognize our communal life has become unmanageable. Step one, in which we recognize the problems our ego self has got us into. And that we need to turn to a power greater than ourselves that can restore us to sanity. Step two, in which we begin to operate out of a caring self that recognizes its dependence on a higher power. This 12-step spirituality provides a kind of an example and a mechanism and a practice that shows what that kind of transformation looks like, what that kind of repentance looks like. It means rejection of, of an ego-driven individualism that sees independence and self-assertion as the highest good. So the prophetic spirituality, while of course affirming the need for individual well-being, especially and particularly of those most oppressed in our current systems of power, women, people of color, black people, indigenous people, queer people, disabled people, while recognizing well-being is caught up with this especially for those that society puts at the bottom also constantly practices this repentance from the illusions of the ego rejecting the illusions i am the center of the universe rejecting the illusions i am independent of all else that the pursuit of my path is all that matters that i'm better than other people or that i'm worried that i'm worse than other people Uh, That's all ego and we constantly prick that illusion to know I'm part of the universe and I have a responsibility to care for others and my worth doesn't depend on the work of the ego and all that I achieve. And we do this through prayer. So many practices of prayer are essentially this learning to reject the programming of the ego and operate out of the true self, a self dependent on relationship with the greater. And that's why worship, the communal practice as well as prayer and individual practice is so vital. Our central mission is to teach people how to pray. In a world that turns by the uncaring self our mission is to teach practices of prayer that root us in the caring self as a child of god our mission is to cultivate a spirituality of repentance you know, prayer is is our greatest gift we are transformed through prayer and that's what I say to people. I'd say, whether you find it in, in Buddhism or in Christianity or in something else, I don't care. right? But find the thing that will make you operate out of your true self. I would call it the Christ self, dependent upon the power of God. I try to start that with my own practice, with my own sense of, of, of what I do. I mean, the, my sense of mission, the first bit of the mission is to pray, pray, pray. I try to do that. I often pray at the same time as my Buddhist colleagues. Uh, I'm in a WhatsApp group called Radical Prayer, that um, where we speak to people of different faiths are constantly praying at the same time and trying to do our work through the power of prayer. The foundational heart of mission, I think, is learning to pray. In a world upturned by selfishness, by the psychology of neoliberalism, We pray as the foundation of a cultural and spiritual transformation. Prayer is a revolutionary act, the most revolutionary act. And I find that a powerful thought because it means the spiritual traditions have such a vital role to play in this vital transformation of the world. It's really significant, the role that we have to play. I'm running late. but we're coming to the last part now. So please bear with me. I know this is a lot. The final part, a spirituality of resilience. There is no doubt that things will get worse before they get better. The climate crisis is here, it's happening, and all we can do is make it less bad. It's difficult to know what that will mean. But the COVID crisis is just one crisis and we'll have many different kind of crises in the future, I'm afraid. We will see a massive influx of climate refugees into our relatively cooler country, people who have been through very hard times. And in the UK, extreme weather events will become more and more serious. You know, I think, Those of us in the UK and similar countries who have lived since the Second World War have this sense that our civilization is stable and inevitable and will never stop functioning and growing whatever happens. And I'm afraid I just don't think that's the case. We can't imagine there will be a day when the stock market collapses, but it's probably gonna happen. We can't imagine there will be a day when the electricity doesn't come out the plugs and water doesn't come out the taps. But these things are dependent on systems that will be put under more pressure than ever before. These things are not inevitable, and they're not invincible. In a 21st century that is less stable than the 20th, what are the world's needs? One is community resilience. I mean, climate disaster events, such as Hurricane Sandy in the United States in 2012, The most at-risk people were the people who didn't know their neighbors. When the floods hit, as they may well do where I live in Riverside in Cardiff, we're gonna need to know our neighbors. I need to know which house in my street has the old man in who can't walk very well, and which one has the newborn baby. We're gonna need to live in streets where people look out for each other. These are the kind of places that are going to be resilient when the electricity stops or when the floods hit, and we need to start doing this now. We need to start knowing our neighbours and finding the local ways of doing this. Community building, street by street, neighbourhood by neighbourhood, is an essential part of this resilience. You know, I believe in the hyperlocal, in the words of Adrian Marie Brown. Not mile wide, inch deep, but inch wide, mile deep. That's something my colleague Rabab Ghazul says a lot and it's part of how I'm trying to work too. I believe God has called me to work in literally 30 streets in Cardiff. That's it, that's enough. That's enough for one person and one lifetime. Hyperlocal work to create resilience. I'm lucky I've connected with an organization that operates out of those values of localism, resilience. And one of the things I've been doing with, with, with Gentle Radical, the organization I work with, is a community podcast about life in the pandemic. And in a sense, the, the end product of a podcast matters less than the fact that it's involved me, as well as lots of other colleagues, knocking on people's doors in my neighborhood and saying, How are you? And will you talk to us? That act of knocking on a door and saying hello to a neighbor. It's painstakingly slow. It's painstakingly gradual inch by inch community work, but it's necessary work. I'd suggest when our lives become so much harder and more traumatic, the intellectual search for truth and meaning or the pursuit of an individual spiritual journey that never settles or commits to a deep tradition will seem a rather irrelevant relic of a more privileged age, if it isn't that already. In an age of of hopelessness, of violence, of hunger and suffering, I rather think our late 20th century Unitarian platitudes will simply become irrelevant. We need hope. I don't think we can live without hope, and yet our situation is near hopeless. We'll need to learn from the kind of people who have been dealing with this for generations. We will need to learn from indigenous people who have faced this crisis already, where their lands were invaded and their landscapes changed, their ways of life destroyed, and yet they're still here and they're still cultivating their traditions and their faith and their languages. And of course white supremacy is part of that story And that violence and i don't want to let white people off the hook for that but i also want to suggest that this is the model of how a lot of us are going to experience the world in the future and so we can learn from that experience and i'm not suggesting appropriating rituals and practices from other peoples the opposite i'm suggesting we turn with renewed vigor to our own practices and our own traditions and sustenance Through the dark times to come. Not being spiritual tourists sampling this and that, saying, oh, that's interesting. Jews do that and that's interesting. Native Americans do that. Just kind of being an education class. I don't think that sort of nonsense is going to sustain us in dark times. I think we're going to need deep, deep practices and stories of hope and resilience that can live deeply in our souls the prophetic biblical story starts with a sense that it's God's vision of justice and peace we are seeking rather than our own we are working with resistance and repentance to deal with the climate crisis but we are doing so with a sense of resilience that comes from being co-creator with God without a sense of grace without uh, if we all think it depends upon us in the words of Unitarian Universalist theologian, Rebecca Parker, we despair. On a personal level, many of us come to a life crisis that forces us to face the fact that there is something broken in this world, that for all our ingenuity, commitment and genius, we cannot fix. We come up against the limits of our faith. We may find ourselves asking, is there any source of help beyond my own strength? The resilience of a prophetic faith is the belief that we are not just doing it in our own strength, but through the power of God. That doesn't let us off the hook for our actions, but it does allow us to act with a sense of someone else carrying the burden with us. We are cultivating a historical prophetic consciousness, a sense of being part of something bigger that echoes into the past and something better that echoes into the future. A sense that we are part of a story of hope, a story of hope we will continue to tell even through hopeless times. The story of hope told by Jesus was the kingdom of God is at hand. And when we understand Jesus as a colonized person, resisting empire amongst a peasant class whose food security was threatened by an economic system we can see he was telling a story of hope in a situation of hopelessness too the kingdom of god is at hand is a prophetic statement meaning the kingdom of caesar is coming to an end the empire of caesar is coming to an end and so the prophetic story of hope we can tell in this moment is that the paradise of god is nearby which means the empire of neoliberalism is coming to an end. Even and especially when it seems that is an impossible dream, we must tell it. That is the practice of hope. For those who want to hear it, I'm gonna give an account of the hope that is within me, that God is in love with the world, that that love is pouring out at all times, that paradise is within us and all around us. And that doesn't mean things won't be tough. It doesn't mean the enemies are not powerful they are, and it is going to be tough. And my personal sense of hope may no doubt go up and down, but I choose to put myself in a tradition of hope, in a story of hope, and in living out this sense of resistance, repentance, and resilience, I will try to give that hope to the world. That is a great transformation that the world needs to go through in this critical moment. There is a great pain that needs healing. There is a new world that needs to be brought to birth. There is a need for a spiritual and cultural revolution that rejects neoliberalism and the culture of the uncaring ego. I believe our ambition has to be so much greater than making one particular religious movement successful. I believe our mission in this critical time is to be part of this work of transformation. Though it will be extremely difficult and feature some hard times, but I believe a spirituality of resistance of repentance and of resilience will bring valuable gifts to this great work of turning. So I invite you to gather into prayer with me once more. God of life be with us in our wrestling with hope and hopelessness. In our wrestling with seeking to understand this world. In our wrestling with ideas and thoughts and debates and the sometimes uncomfortable work of thinking, of learning Hold this earth and our own bodies, as much as our own bodies and the body of the earth aches with pain and yet still breathes the breath of life. Help us to move now for a moment from our minds to our bodies. To sink into that breath of life. In taking some breaths, in being in your presence. in seeking your loving stillness. Amen. With
2: our minds-